Good morning, church. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn with me to the book of Genesis. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 39. And we've got a lot of territory to cover this morning. We're going to try to cover two chapters this morning, 46 and 47. So buckle up as we dive into God's Word together. If you're new to the Bible, the larger numbers on those pages are the chapter divisions. So we're looking at chapter 46, and then the smaller numbers that you see afterwards are the verses of that chapter. I encourage you to keep your Bible open and read and follow carefully as we dig into God's word together. For almost 30 years, Jackie Jones has been a faithful member of First Baptist Church. She has been a prayer warrior for many of us. She has been an encourager to countless people. Two weeks ago, I went to visit Miss Jackie not long after she had to be airlifted to the hospital due to an, an unforeseen medical emergency. And so when I went to see her, I wasn't sure what to expect. But when I went, on, when I went and saw her and asked how she was, her response was, Zach, you know in Psalm 37, when the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart? I've always wanted to go in a helicopter ride. <laughs> and today, God has given me the desires of my heart. And as I talked with her, it became clear to me that Miss Jackie was not worried about herself. She wanted to know how we as a church are doing. She wanted to talk about her family, who she loves dearly. She talked to me about how she said, speak up a little bit so my roommate behind the curtain can hear the gospel too, which is very Miss Jackie. In the shadow of death, she has told us as a church, I have been waiting for this day all my life. In a famine, a famine of health, Miss Jackie remains fruitful, which leaves the world scratching their head at Miss Jackie saying, how is that possible? And in this past week, I had a chance to visit other members of our church, Joseph and Cynthia Thomas and their daughter, Crystal. Many of you will know this couple as well. At the age of 70, Mr. Thomas was baptized here. We had a chance to celebrate God's work in his life. And since then, they've been faithful members of our church. But recently, Mr. Joseph's health has deteriorated so that he is now confined to one room in their house. As I talked with him and his wife, it was clear that they ached because they long to be here physically with us every Sunday, and they just can't. They miss us. They miss seeing your faces. They miss worshiping together with us, and they just physically are not able to. And so talking with them, it was clear to me that the physical and the emotional toll that they're enduring, and yet what struck me about my time with Joseph and Cynthia this week is that they weren't complaining. What struck me was their evident hope in God. Their palatable confidence that God is working all things together for their good, including this sickness, which they hate and is uncomfortable. They are thankful. 
thankful, thankful, thankful. That's what they talked about, how thankful they are for their church family, how thankful they are for their kids and for their grandkids who are caring so well for them in this trial. In famine, Joseph and Cynthia remain fruitful. The world scratches their head and asks, how? It's a good question. Famine, when we think about famine, famine typically, traditionally, is defined as a severe lack of food that threatens death. But whether unemployment or sickness or poverty or rejection or war or some other loss that we are enduring, we can think of a famine as not having enough. Not having enough money, not having enough health, not having enough friendships or safety or skill, not having what it takes to live. And it's the threat of not having enough that leads many of us to fear. So how? How can we be fruitful in a famine? no matter what that famine might be. Well, let me try to summarize the big idea of chapters 46 and 47 for us this morning. The big idea is this. We can be fruitful in famine by the help of God's presence and the hope of God's promise. We can be fruitful in famine by the help of God's presence and the hope of God's promise. So what I wanna do this morning is take that big idea Break it into two parts. Those are the two points of our sermon this morning. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Rely on God's presence. Point number one, rely on God's promise, God's presence. This is chapter 46, verse 1, all the way to chapter 47, verse 6. So let's dig into God's word. Look with me at chapter 46, verse 1. This is God's word. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Let me just pause there because this is kind of laying the foundation for where we're headed in chapter 46. You'll notice in verse 1, our text begins with that conjunction, so, right? So that that should clue us into, he's making a conclusion based on what came before. He's saying, Joseph's journey is based on what came from chapter 45. In chapter 45, which we looked at last week, Joseph's brothers come to their dad after going to Egypt, after having learned that Joseph's alive, and now his, his, his brothers come back to their dad, Jacob, and they say, listen, dad, Joseph's alive. <laughs> and he's actually second in charge of all Egypt. For 20 years, 22 years, Jacob has thought that his, his son was dead. And so it was hard for him to believe this good news and, and we're told that his heart went numb. He didn't believe it at first. But then when he sees the wagons that they sent, and when he hears all the words that Joseph had sent to tell him, he actually, we're told, his soul revived. And by God's grace, he believes. And when he believes that Joseph is alive, he immediately, he says, well, I gotta go see him. 
And so before he knows it, he finds himself heading south. From the promised land, he's heading south on a journey from the promised land to Egypt. He was ecstatic that, how about the news of Joseph being alive? But as soon as he set out on this kind of impulse, kind of reaction, I'm going to go see my son, it likely sank in before he left the promised land that this was a bit of a hasty decision. I got to think this one through. And so he stops at the border of the, the southern border of the promised land in Beersheba, where we've seen his father and grandfather before, and he thinks it over. Now, God had called Abraham his grandfather and promised to turn him into a great nation. He had told Abraham that he would give him the promised land, and he had promised Abraham that he would bless him and his family to make him a blessing to all the nations. That was what he told Abraham, his grandfather. And then God repeats that promise to Isaac, his dad. And then God repeats that promise again to Jacob. Now, when Isaac faced a famine, similar to what Jacob's facing, Isaac was like, I'm going to Egypt. And guess what? God stops him and says, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I shall tell you. That's Genesis 26, verse 2. And and Jacob would have known that. So before he leaves the promised land, because of a famine, to go to Egypt, He's like, is this the right thing for me to do? God already told my dad not to do that. Is this the right thing for me to do? I want to see my son, but is is this the right thing for me to do? And so you can see the questions that are beginning to well up in his mind and some of the fear that is welling up in his heart. If he leaves Canaan, if he leaves the promised land, will God stop doing him good? Would leaving the promised land put God's promises for him and his family in jeopardy? He's not sure. He's afraid. And so knowing Jacob's fears, God graciously comes to Jacob in a vision and God speaks to him. In verse three, he says to him, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? For there, in Egypt, I will make you into a great nation. I'm not going to give up on my promise that I made to you and your father and your grandfather. And actually, it's actually going to be in Egypt that I'm going to fulfill that. Now, at this point, Jacob's family was relatively small. But Egypt, God is saying, Egypt would become the incubator. Egypt would become the place where the offspring of Jacob would multiply and multiply and multiply until they became as many as the stars of heaven, as God had promised. He's saying to Jacob, in Egypt, they would become a great nation. In Egypt, God would be faithful to keep his promise to make them into a great nation. And this was not plan B. This was not an accident. This was not chance. Egypt had been God's plan from the very beginning. In fact, when he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 13, he said, listen, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you, but pretty soon your family's gonna be stuck in Egypt for 400 years and you'll be afflicted. So picture Moses' first readers, the Israelites who were either about to enter the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years or whether it's the Israelites who are in exile for their disobedience to God or wherever, where, the, the Israelites or Moses' first readers 
imagine them reading this. The Israelites who lived through the Exodus would have known about this affliction because they lived as slaves in Egypt. And so knowing that, one of the questions is how could Egypt enslave them for 400 years and how could then God still turn them into a great nation? How does that work? If Jacob's asking that question, God answers that in verse four. How is he gonna do this? Verse four, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. It's gonna be 400 years, but I promise I will bring you up again. So here's what he's saying to Jacob. I'm giving you my presence. I'm gonna go with you. God, God's power, God's authority is not limited to the boundary lines of the promised land. This God, Yahweh, is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is God Almighty, whose rule and authority extends to all of creation, every nation. There are no boundary lines to God and his authority. And so if he sends him into Egypt, he's still in control. This God, this God Almighty, with no boundary lines, is going to go with Jacob and his family. Okay, Verse 5, chapter 46, verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. This promise invigorates him. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now I'm gonna pause there because if you keep reading in verses eight all the way to verse 27, Moses begins this specific and detailed genealogy listing the family tree of Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob. And he's listing everybody that's gonna come with them into Egypt. So I'm not gonna read that here, but I want us to remember that this family, the family of Jacob, how they begin. They begin with an old barren couple, 90 and 100 years old, Abraham and Sarah, where humanly speaking, starting a family was impossible. But when you get done reading this genealogy, you get to verse 27, here they are, The impossible has happened. Now they're a family of 70. Let me just make two observations. You can read verses 5 through 27 this afternoon. Let me make two observations from this genealogy. First, notice that that Jacob was afraid to leave the promised land. He wasn't sure if this was the right thing to do. But after God promises to go with him, he does not let his fear control him. Verse 5 says, Jacob set out from Beersheba. In other words, God says, go, and he obeyed. One of the observations to make from that is, is the nature of faith. Faith is not merely agreeing with something that it's true. Yeah, I got that. No, faith acts in obedience to what God said is true. So God says, go, and he doesn't let his fear control him. He says, if God says, I'm going, and he goes, he leaves from Beersheba. Second observation I want us to make here. We're told in this genealogy over and over that who did he take with him? All 
his offspring. All his offspring left with him. Moses repeats that phrase four times in this genealogy in order for emphasis. Verse six, we're told, Jacob and all his offspring. Verse seven, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Then we get down to verse 26. All the persons, verse 27, all the persons of the house of, ja- uh, the house of Jacob. We're like, okay, Moses, I got it. But he's making this point, driving it home four times. Jacob brought everybody. When they went over that border of Beer- the borderline of the promised land, leaving Beersheba, none of the family of Jacob was left in the promised land. When uh, my family and I were in Thailand this a few months ago and we were leaving, um, we had to stand in this really long line at the airport and this line was moving as slow as molasses. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at the clock and we're like, we're not gonna make our flight. It, and the, the line went around the airport and it was just not moving. And so I, I said to my wife and my kids, listen, I'm gonna, go the, I'm gonna go to the customer desk and see if I can figure out what to do here and you guys stay here. And so... Um, Katie and the boys kind of stood in line in order to hold our spot. I went to the customer desk, but they held our spot just in case my plan didn't work. That way we wouldn't lose our place in line. Jacob's not doing that. Jacob did not take half his family into Egypt and then say half of his kids, why don't you stay in the promised land and hold our place in line just in case. No, he took all his family, all his offspring, There's no one left to hold their place in line in the promised land because God said go. And so he says, we're all going then. Faith does not hedge the bets. When God commands go, faith steps out in obedience, even if obedience feels risky. And obedience always feels risky, right? That's why we trust God. And let me just say that, that this dealing and facing the risk, what if I lose what's valuable to me and not hedging the bets, that, that idea is not extraordinary. Well, that's for the super Christians. Us normal Christians, we can hedge our bets. No, that's not extraordinary Christianity. That is Christianity. It's like marriage, Right? When a, a man and a woman make vows at the altar and they promise to forsake all others, they don't say, except for a couple. That won't go very well. No, they, for, they promise to forsake all others and to be faithful to each other as long as they both live. The Christian life and our relationship with God is like that marriage. And so we're left asking I'm left asking myself, and I want to ask us as a church, are you Christian, are you all in when it comes to following Jesus? Or are you hedging your bets? I I trust Jesus, but I'm gonna keep some options open just in case it doesn't work out. I'm gonna keep my place in line just in in case this doesn't work out. Are you saying, I love Jesus, but you're, you're keeping your options open and you have a, another love lurking in the shadows? Remember what Jesus says, you, no one can serve two masters for you will either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So point is, Jacob takes everybody. 
burns the bridge. He's like, we're going in. We're going to obey God, right? And then we come to verse 28. Chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show him the way before him into Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and, his, my, my, brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let me pause there. So we see this this very emotional, understandably emotional reunion between Jacob and his father, uh, or Jacob and his son Joseph. They hadn't seen each other for 22 years. But Jacob's family, so he's, he's thrilled. But Jacob's family is not in the clear yet. They, he, they've risked everything coming to Egypt. But we're not sure how this is going to end yet. Verse 34 tells us that a shepherd was an abomination to an Egyptian. What's an abomination? Well, it's like saying that a shepherd was detestable. A shepherd was loathsome. A shepherd was like, ew, yuck, away, ugh, to an Egyptian. So what if they come in and tell the truth to Pharaoh that we're shepherds? What if Pharaoh's like, ew, yuck, abomination, and he changes his mind? Go back. Y'all stink. What if he's grossed out? What if he sends them back to where they came from? They've already lost their place in line. They gave up their spot, not to mention that they're in a severe famine that's going to last another five years. You feel the risk of all this. If they tell the truth to Pharaoh, what's he going to do? What if he changes his mind? Now, as we've walked with Jacob, now, we've known that in the past, when Jacob got nervous, what did he do? He lied and he schemed to get ahead in order to control his future. He doesn't do that, though. Joseph tells them, Jacob and his brothers, just tell the truth. And so they go to Pharaoh, they tell Pharaoh the truth, and then they just leave the results with God. That's what we see starting in chapter 48. Look with me at chapter 48, verse 1. This is where the, the tension really reaches its climax. Verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. Now they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds. And as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land 
for there is no pasture for our servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So, again, we're asking, okay, what's he going to do? So to kind of prime the pump, Joseph goes first, and he talks to Pharaoh, and he says, this is, my brothers are in town, He's trying to kind of smooth the road for him, and then he brings five brothers to kind of represent the, the 12, and the brothers talk with Pharaoh, and they just tell him the truth. We're shepherds. And they, they seem to follow Joseph's plan, because Joseph told them what to say. They seem to follow Joseph's plan down to the detail until the end of verse 4. And they just straight up ask Pharaoh for the land of Goshen. Which, remember, the land of Goshen in Egypt is considered the best of the land. So it's, listen, it's one thing for me to come to you and say, hey, listen, my car broke down. Can you give me a ride? It's another thing for me to come to you and say, can I just have your car? You'd be like, dude, that's a little bit forward, right? It's one thing for these brothers to come into Egypt and say, hey, Pharaoh, it, there's a famine. Can you help us out? It's another thing to them, for them to come to Pharaoh and say, can you give us the best of the land? But just, they make this bold, blunt request, not and on top of the fact that shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. And so when we get to verse, uh, the end of verse 4, we're like, oh my goodness, this is, this is going to blow up in their faces. What's going to happen? We're holding our breath. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. I mean, this is amazing, right? In verse 4, the brothers are saying, they're asking to sojourn in the land as a temporary guest. That's what a sojourn means. But in verse 6, Pharaoh says, sojourn, temporary guest, forget it. He goes above and beyond. He says, I want you to settle in. Make yourself at home. Take the best of the land. Take Goshen. In fact, if you've got any, any good shepherds, I'll hire them on as my royal shepherds. Wow. The tension's resolved. they got a place to live now in the middle of this famine. Now, I think one fair question that we might ask is, well, okay, let's just back up a second, right? Okay, they're in Egypt, great. But why? I mean, God can do what he wants. Why, why a 400-year detour into Egypt? Because we know they're going to become slaves by the next pharaoh. So why is God doing that? That's a fair question. But I want us to notice something. We kind of skipped over it, but in, in chapter 46, verse 10, in that genealogy, we learned that Simeon, one of Jacob's sons married who? A Canaanite. An unbelieving, idol-worshiping, I-don't-trust-Yahweh Canaanite woman. That ain't good. God told him not to do that. And so one of the things to observe is that Canaan, the promised land, with all of their idolatry, well, they were happy to just co-mingle with the Israelites and to integrate them into their religion and their idolatry and intermarry with them. And if that continues on, then you're going to lose the people of God. 
But on the other hand, when you come to Egypt, we're told that Egypt was happy to leave Israel alone. Why? Because they're an abomination. They're shepherds. Ew. Gross. Let's lead them by themselves and not touch them. Do you see what God's doing? He sees Egypt as a perfect place, an incubator to make this 70-person this family into a great nation, to protect them from the idolatrous influence of Canaan until, Genesis 15 verse 16 says, until the sin of the Amorites, that's the Canaanites, reaches the end of God's patience. Then after that 400 years of God's very, very long patience, he'll say, okay, it's the, the sin of the Amorites has reached its completion, it's time to go in and take the land. I mean, God, is, a, God is, a, is working a masterpiece in his sovereignty. He is in control of this whole thing. God is, and the point is, God is with his people wherever they go, protecting them, providing for them, guiding them. In other words, God is being faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. He's being faithful to do everything that he has promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Psalm 23 is a favorite part of the Bible for many people, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And it's, it's, a, it's a, a beloved psalm for good reason because it is a psalm of comfort where the psalmist faces countless what-ifs that tempt him to fear. And then when we get to verse four of the psalm, he says, okay, but even, even though I walk through, not around, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The presence of God Almighty silences the fear of the psalmist. Now, all his life, Jacob had tried to muscle his way through life, scheming and lying in order to try and to control his future. And, ja and God is just saying to Jacob over and over in his patience, no, Jacob, don't trust your lies, don't trust your schemes, don't trust your plans. I want you to trust me. I will be with you. I will be faithful to do what I promised you. I'm gonna go with you. And so when we get to the end of Psalm 23, the end of Psalm 23 says, okay, here's the promise. Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And if you read that carefully, and if we're honest with ourselves, we read, the, we read verse six and we're like, I don't like that. I want it to say, surely goodness and mercy will go ahead of me so I can see and know what's coming tomorrow. And I know, because God's already telling me, that, okay, tomorrow here's the good thing I'm gonna do. Here's the mercy I'm gonna do. No, and he says, no, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say goodness and mercy shall go ahead of me that I can see it and then control my future. No, verse six says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. I step into tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but what is the promise? I look back and I'm gonna see goodness and mercy following me all of my days. We can't see what's before us, just like Jacob couldn't. But no matter what comes tomorrow, and this is the lesson that he's learning, if you're in Christ, trusting God, God is with you. Brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in Christ, God is with you, and he will never, ever 
leave you or forsake you. And as we trust our good shepherd, we too will see goodness and mercy follow us every step we take. If we are to be fruitful in famine, we must rely on God's presence. Point number two, hope in his promise. Rely on his his presence, point two, hope in his promise. This is 47, chapter 47, verses seven through 31. So let's look at the text again. Chapter 47, verse seven. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of of the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Pharaoh brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "'Give us food.'" Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that that year was ended and they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And then they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priest alone, 
did not become Pharaoh's. Let me stop, stop at verse 26. This, this famine, God had told Pharaoh in a dream, interpreted through Joseph, that this famine would be severe and it would last for seven years. And so that's what happens, because that's what God said. And so this famine lingered year after year. And people in Egypt and in the surrounding region became desperate for food. They don't eat, they, they don't live. But thankfully, Joseph had stored up plenty of grain and had plenty of food to keep the people in Egypt and the surrounding areas alive as he sold them that grain to live on. As time went on, the Egyptians spent their money. They ran out of money. Then they sold their livestock for food, and then they sold their land and labor for food. And the famine was so bad that we're told that they, they willingly became indentured servants of Pharaoh in order to survive. But again, Joseph had plenty of grain to sell them and to keep them alive. Now, sometimes when we read this text, we kind of import our kind of modern understanding of a text like this. We need to be careful because this is, I just want to say as a side note, this is not slavery like chattel slavery in American history. This is something different. Given the desperate and extreme situation of the, fam- the famine that they're in, we're told that the Egyptians willingly became servants. In fact, when they, when they, uh, they, they offer themselves their labor for food, we're told that they were thankful to Joseph and that they were alive. Verse 25 says that. They say to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will become servants to Pharaoh. They were alive. They were thankful. It was hard, but they were thankful. But as desperate as it was for the Egyptians, I think the point of this text in this section is a comparison. As desperate as it was for the Egyptians, we see Jacob's family had it significantly better. And, and, and if you're a later Israelite reading this text and you would have known the history of being a slave, it would have been strange to realize that it, didn't always, it wasn't always that way. There was a time when they were the prosperous ones in Egypt, right? We're told that Joseph provided ample food for Jacob and his brothers in verse 12. You look at Jacob and his family, they got plenty of food. But then in contrast, verse 13 says that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Another detail that Moses brings up, while Jacob's family took possession of the best of the land, it's not just they asked to sojourn and and, and Pharaoh's like, no, I'm going to give you a plot of land. You're going to own property, the best of the land in Egypt and Goshen. So while Jacob's family is taking possession of the best of the land in Egypt, every other Egyptian living in the land has had to sell all of their land in order to survive. What a contrast. And I think the point of this contrast is that, is that look at how God is blessing his people. Look at how God is providing for them. Especially in this contrast. And so knowing all of God's provision and knowing of God's protection and knowing of God's blessing his people in Egypt, Jacob's meeting with Pharaoh is a little puzzling in verse 9. Because you'll remember at the end of Abraham's life, his grandfather, at the end of Abraham's life, we're told that he was an old man and full of years. 
In other words, when Abraham died, he died full of life. It's a Hebrew phrase that means he died content, satisfied, happy in the Lord. But when Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? Jacob responds in verse 9 a little differently. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. (sighs) I'm adding that sigh, but I think it's there. I mean, sheesh. I mean, this, this could have been a chance for him before Pharaoh to tell all that God had done. He's done so much for me. I cannot tell it all. He could have sang that song to Pharaoh and give glory to God, but he doesn't. His first interaction with Pharaoh, he just complains. Oh, life's been hard, unpleasant. It's been evil. Now, before we kind of rag on Jacob, I think it's, it's, you know, Jacob had hardships, right? I mean, he, he, he had a brother who wanted to kill him. Now, he did cheat his brother, Esau, but Esau still wanted to kill him, and he had to go on the run for his life. His children lied to him about Joseph, and for 22 years he believed and grieved the death of Joseph. He's been on the run. He's not been home. He's been living in tents as a sojourner in the land of promise. So yeah, it's it's not been easy. It's been hard. That's true. But he still had God's promise. He had the presence of God, God Almighty, with him to provide for him, to protect him, to guide him. He had his family, 70 people. He had all that he needed. While, while, while Egypt and the land of Canaan is languishing, they have plenty of food. While all the other people in Egypt have no land, they have the best of the land. But in choosing to focus on his hardship, Jacob was blind to all the good things that God was doing in his life. Couldn't see it. I wonder if you can relate with Jacob in that. Something bad happens in your life. Something doesn't go the way you'd hoped. And the only thing that you can see, it's like the, you know, the horses have those blinders. The only thing we can see is this stinks. Life stinks. Nothing's right. Sadly, I wish, I, I, I wish this wasn't true, but I think I can relate with Jacob. I, I find it easy for me to dwell on the things that are not going the way that I want in my life. It's easy for me to focus on complaints It's easy for me to to focus on the things that I actually did wrong, the things that I messed up. And then I dwell on those things, and before long, I'm just discouraged because that becomes everything. And I put these blinders on, and I can't see and celebrate and give thanks to God for all the good things that he's doing. We had a prayer meeting about a month ago where we just kind of we, we kind of did a, a quick Bible study before we prayed. And we just talked about, all right, we're going to talk about the evidences of God's grace that we see in each other's lives. And my goodness, if that was not encouraging. I would, I would have taken up the whole prayer time just to do that because we were kind of giving God glory by saying, this is what I see in so-and-so's life. This is what I see in so-and-so's life. And I was like, let's just keep doing this. But here's the thing. I think we need to 
be reminded of this because like Jacob, it's easy for us to focus on the things that are hard or discouraging or that are not going as we wanted and then, and then not see what God is doing in our own lives. We, but when we do that, we discount the good that God has done. It might seem almost safe or humble for us to just focus on the bad because focusing on the bad will motivate us to try hard in the future, right? But when we do that, we dishonor the good that God has done or is doing because we're not, we're not giving him credit or thanks. We misuse an opportunity to say, thank you, God. And God is glorified by that. Now, I'm not saying that we ignore the hard stuff or the tough stuff in life. But I am saying that seeing that comes quite naturally to most of us. <laughs> right? What we do need to be reminded of and what we do need to work at is to slow down and see the good that God has done, that God has and is doing in our lives, and then to give him thanks. You want a homework assignment today? It's a good homework assignment. At lunch today, talk with the people that you're having lunch and do that. Talk about, okay, yeah, there's things that are not good in our life and hard and tough, and we'll, we'll take those to the Lord too in prayer. But let's just, at lunch, let's just talk about all the good things that God has done and is doing that we can just, that we can say out loud and praise God together and encourage each other with those good things and give thanks to him together. That's, that's our homework assignment for lunch today. And just see what happens. It's deeply encouraging. All right, verse 27. Chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if, I have, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now Jacob may have grumbled when he first gets into Egypt and meets Pharaoh. But over time, during his stay in Egypt... He changes. Verse 27 says, they were fruitful. It's a famine. And yet they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God's promise fueled his hope. And so when he prepared to die, he made sure that Joseph would bury him in the promised land. Don't let, me, don't let me stay here. I, I, when I die, I'm going to be with my fathers, but I want my, I want my body to be in the promised land. As God said, he, he said that he would bring us up out of this land. So, so when you go, make sure you bring my bones and bury them in the promised land. What was the promise that fueled Jacob's hope? God had promised Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. Land, offspring, and blessing. Genesis 12, verse 2, you'll remember, God promised Abraham, I will 
bless you. Why? So that you will be a blessing to others. So that you will be a blessing to the nations. And, and friends, listen, that's what we see happening in chapter 47. God is blessing Jacob's family. And as Egypt receives them, the people of God, God's people become a blessing to Egypt. Namely, God uses Joseph to save the lives of the Egyptians during the famine. Do you see it? So God's being faithful. He's doing what he promised. All right, but Zach, listen, this is thousands of years ago. All this talk about the land and the offspring and the blessing, what's this got to do with us today in Maryland? Everything. All right, turn in your Bibles with me. You can leave Genesis. Turn with me to Galatians in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3. If you're looking at your black Bible, that's found on page 973. And I want us to look at Galatians 3. This is one of many places. The book of Romans does it too. Philippians does it. Galatians is really clear. So we're going to go look at Galatians 3, starting in verse 7, page 973 of your Bible. Because I want us to read what Paul the Apostle says because he actually tells us how we should read today as Christians, how we should read the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12. So don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul. Let him be the divine commentary on how we should read this promise. Okay, you with me? Galatians 3 verse 7. Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith. He's writing to the Galatian church, mainly composed of Gentiles, Gentile Christians. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of who? Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham according to chapter 3, verse 7? Those of faith. Those who trust Jesus. Verse 8. And the scripture, Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the good news, beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What's Paul doing? Paul's looking back to Genesis 12, verse 3, when God said to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. And then through Joseph, we see a partial fulfillment of that. Joseph saves Egypt. He saves the nations from physical famine. But listen, that's, not, that's a partial fulfillment. It's just a signpost. Joseph is just a signpost pointing forward to Jesus. That's the point. What's happening today in the Middle East is important because people on both sides of this conflict are made in God's image. But Galatians 3, verse 17, makes it clear that the offspring through whom God will bless all the nations is not a modern nation state. The offspring, he's crystal clear, the offspring through whom God, the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless all the nations is Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 17. Jesus, church, Jesus is the point. Jesus is the offspring. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Jesus is the one by whom all nations will be blessed. And so here's the, here's the thing. Do you want to be blessed? It's what you do with Jesus that determines whether or not you'll be blessed. Whether you'll be cursed or whether you'll be blessed. Where do I get that from? Look back at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here's what Paul's saying in verses 10 through 12. Paul's point is that if you rely on your obedience to God's good law, If you rely on your being a good enough person for God to accept you, then you are cursed. Because Paul is not pulling any punches. He's saying, you haven't kept the law. Because if you want to rely on the keeping of the law for your salvation, then you have to do all the things that are written in the book of the law without fail perfectly. And none of us have done that. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news, and it's true. So what's the good news? You ready? Verse 13. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, you ready for this? The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, it is not enough for us just to look at Jesus in the pages of history and say, yeah, Jesus existed and he was a good moral teacher. Great. That's not enough. He won't allow us to just make that conclusion with him because Jesus himself claimed to be the eternal son of God. He claimed to be Emmanuel, God with us. He claimed to be the one who was God in the flesh, he came to dwell, he, he took on flesh and God dwelt with us. He tabernacled among us, John 1, 14. And he proved that he is the eternal son of God by willingly laying down his life on the cross for our sins and the sins of those who would trust in him and then rising from the dead on the third day. So my non-Christian friend, you have to answer the question, what will you do with Jesus? Whether you are cursed or blessed, it all comes down to that. What will you do with Jesus? I urge you this morning, turn from your sin. Turn from your self-reliance. Turn from thinking that your good works will be enough and trust in Christ who became a curse for you so that you might be blessed in Christ. And if you trust in Christ, you'll find that your sins, past, present, and future, are nailed to the cross. You bear them no more. And because your sins have been nailed to the cross because of Christ, you'll be united to Christ by faith. And in Christ, you will receive the blessing of Abraham, the very presence of God in your life to protect you, provide for you, and carry you all the way home. Come to him. 
my non-Christian friend. To my Christian brothers and sisters this morning, most of us here are Gentiles. I don't know if we have any Jewish Christians here. We're Gentiles. To be Gentile means that you're not a Jew, right? So we're Gentile Christians. Because, listen, because of Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, according to Galatians 4.17, or 3.17, because of Jesus, we today, gathered together as the people of God, we are the nations that God spoke to Abraham about when he said, in you, all the nations will be blessed. We are those nations! Our, our Savior was, a, was a, a Jewish Savior, a fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies the, uh, in, in the Old Testament. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And we're trusting in him. And so we, have, we are the nations who have been brought into the family of God. We are blessed because of Jesus. We've got so much better than we deserve. So you may be broke, you may be sick, you may be hungry, you may be unemployed, but friends, if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, you are in the most important sense of the word, you are blessed. Jacob's family was sojourning in Egypt. A sojourner is somebody who is a temporary guest. They're not home yet. And in the same way, friends, our citizenship is in heaven. We're not home yet. We are sojourners and exiles on earth. You check into a hotel this week, your bed might be lumpy and uncomfortable. You might look at the curtains like, I hate the curtains of this hotel room. But none of us are gonna go buy a new bed or change the curtains. Why? Because we're just passing through. It's just one night. Friends, teachers in America like Joel Osteen, will try to mislead people by saying that you can have your best life now. Friends, don't believe him. The Bible is clear that the best is yet to come. And so when I see Miss Jackie flourishing and fruitful in famine, when I see Joseph and Cynthia fruitful in the midst of famine, they are fruitful and flourishing because they believe and know and have the hope unshakably this is hard, but the best is yet to come and it's just around the corner. And so we press on, fruitful in famine, by relying on the help of God's presence, fueled by the hope of God's unfailing promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you today for your presence. We deserve to be cast out of your presence because of our sin and your holiness, and yet we thank you for Jesus who took on flesh and died in our place and rose again that we might be able to have bold and confident and humble access into your presence. So we give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.